Hey, everybody. Welcome to Thursday at noon. My name is Tim. This is Tim Hatch Live, and this is 10 Questions with Tim. Uh, so glad that you've joined us, and uh, some of you are already on the chat, and I do see you already over here on my screen. Just so you know, say hello if you've joined us in the chat. Um, hi, Louise, Kevin, and Larissa, constant deep enders. Hi, guys, and uh, welcome anybody else who is watching and not chatting. I know a lot of you just watch it on your television set or you watch it somewhere else and you don't chat or you watch it after it's recorded. Um, I'm excited to have you here. This is the new segment of the Tim Hatch Live channel, 10 Questions with Tim, a bi-weekly uh, event where we take your questions and we answer them, or at least I answer them to the best of my ability, according to the Bible. I've got my Bible open. I hope you've got your Bible open if you have one available to you. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting into this. So I uh, try to keep this an hour. And so let's get into it, shall we? Right to it. So question number one comes to us, I believe this is from Sue Cabersius. Cabersius. I'm sorry if I am slaughtering your name, Sue. But anyway, here's the question. What do you think about the death pen penalty? An eye for an eye or turn the other cheek and give them life in prison? Great question. Uh, it's an important question because... Um, you know, this is obviously there's never going to be an end to murder until Jesus Christ comes back. Uh, and there is absolutely in the Old Testament a call for an eye for an eye. The death penalty was instituted by God in the Old Testament law. The question then becomes for New Testament believers when Jesus is talking about interpersonal relationships and he talks about turning the other cheek. First off, let's talk about that idea of turning the other cheek. It's one of the most mismanaged scriptures in all of the Bible. What is Jesus talking about when he says, turn the other cheek? Well, first off, he's referring to a Roman law that allowed, um, I'm not sure if it was Roman citizens or if it's just Roman soldiers, to virtually slap uh, or punish any Jew uh, indiscriminately, according to however they felt like it. Um, this was a, uh, an oppressive rule. It was an oppressive law when Jesus is talking about turning the other cheek. The second, oh, by the way, there was a, 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 a second law that went with that, which Jesus also addresses in the Sermon on the Mount, which is, that a Roman centurion could force a Jew or any occupied citizen of any country to carry his um, military armament for one mile. Uh, so Jesus says, here's how you answer those oppressive rules. You do more than is expected of you. You turn the other cheek. Uh, in other words, slap me again. And then the other one is you go with them that extra mile. By the way, the phrase go the extra mile comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount statement about that oppressive law. Jesus is referring to an oppressive law that was instituted by Rome that took advantage of their uh, oppressor status over the Jewish people. And he's teaching the Jewish people not to revolt against the civil order. He's teaching them passive or uh, uh, passivity in matters of interpersonal relationships to the civil order. I hope that is clear. At the same time, the death penalty does in fact carry through to the New Testament in Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, Paul uh, extols the necessity of the um, government, civil government, and he specifically talks about the sword of government, that the government that has been instituted by God does not, does not um, hold the sword for nothing. If you want to do what is right, if you don't, he says, if you want to not be afraid of the civil order, do what is right. So uh, civil order is established by God. These are governments and leaders in government to maintain some semblance of civil order. If there was no punishment for, for murder, 
I guarantee you there'd be a heck of a lot more murder. And a case could be made that when countries eliminate the death penalty, the murder rate goes up. Um, so we have to take scripture as the authority here. It's not what I think about the death penalty. It's what God has said about the death penalty in the Old Testament. Of course, that is a civil law for the Jews under their their dominion, their, their uh, civil law. Their civil law was annulled when the um, Babylonians came in and destroyed them and, and took them captive and then redefined them as a nation. And, and then uh, that was followed by the, um, the, the Persians, the Medes, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. So by the time you get to the Romans' times of occupying Israel and dominating the world at that time, the first century in which Jesus was born, you have a civil order that Paul now exonerates as, well, not exonerates, but establishes as this is God's design. Okay, so that goes all the way back in Scripture to Genesis chapter 9 at the conclusion of the flood. Remember, God judges the world because uh, the flood... I'm sorry, through the flood, because people were excessively evil. People were murdering each other left, right, and center. There was no regard for human life. The only law that is instituted after the flood to Noah, we call it the Noahic covenant, is the death penalty. Uh, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, his blood shall be shed. That's in Genesis chapter 9. So that is the establishment of civil order. Then, three chapters later, you get through the establishment of God's kingdom dominion through Abraham. So you have the Noahic covenant, then you have the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant operates underneath the Noahic covenant. And through the, no- the Abrahamic covenant comes the church, because Jesus is the true son of Abraham. He is the seed of Abraham through, through which life comes to all the nations, in the nations. And God is drawing out Re- Revelation chapter 20. All the nations come out. All the peoples of God come out of the nations, come into the new heavenly city. So, so there is two... Uh, kingdoms of God in this earth, the civil order, which is not redeemed and will not travel into the next age. And then there is the order of his people or the kingdom order of Abraham uh, fulfilled through Jesus. And that will travel into the next age. And so while we are under the auspices of this age where murder, lies, adultery, thieves, stealing, all that kind of stuff exists, there needs to be punishment. And uh, there is um, a case to be made for both Old and New Testament in which the civil or- the civil law has not been annulled to require the death penalty for murderers. Look, sometimes guys confess to the most brut- brutal murders in history. There's, a, there's the case of the couple in, uh, in um, Connecticut where these two men went into a ro- house and murdered the father, the mother, raped the children and murdered them and then burned them all alive. And they confess to it. And they are sitting in prison for life when they should have been executed. They are being, <laughs> they are being kept alive. I mean, this is, this, is the, this is a departure from justice, according to the word of God. And then we wonder why there is disrespect for human life and there is disrespect for human dignity across the world. Look, the death penalty, in some sense, is a, a law instituted to respect human life. That's how precious and, and wonderful it is, that when you take it, your life should be taken. We do not rejoice at the death of anyone, but we do rejoice in the justice of God. And uh, so I hope that answers your question. Thank you so much and i see some chat is growing here hello to kelly hello to lisa foley hello to stephanie and um every one of you yeah you can see yourself on the chat window isn't that cool okay (laughs) let's get to question number two my question is in regards to infertility. At this point in time, I am unable to have children due to medical due to a medical condition. I am 35 years old. I am truly I truly always envisioned myself as a mother, so the news was a tough pill to swallow. I'm sitting back 
going, okay, this is God's plan, and for, uh, and for some reason he didn't want me to have children. And I've partially come to terms with accepting that. I need to work on it. I know children are a blessing from God. I'm blessed in so many ways without children, but help me understand why this is happening to me. I know you don't know why, but any advice, scripture, to reference, etc. Anything to better understand, even if I never know the why. Hmm. Uh, first off, to this anonymous questioner, I say, uh, my heart goes out to you. Oops, the question disappeared. Oops, sorry. Get this back up. There we go. My heart goes out to you. I'm, uh, I'm saddened for your condition. And, and, and as regards to some of your statements, let me slow you down a bit. Uh, I don't know your condition. You didn't go into details, but I will tell you, but don't assume something is God's plan just because medical personnel have told you that. Okay, God has the power and ability to do what we cannot do and what medic- medicine cannot do. Um, in my own church, in my own ministry, in my own prayers over people, I have seen God subvert the natural order and subvert the diagnoses of many a doctor and perform miracles in the matter of infertility, uh, in the matter of cancer diagnoses, uh, tumors. Uh, through our church, through the laying on of hands, James chapter 5, the elders of the church coming, anointing with oil. That was the medicinal practice of the church in those days, in the ancient world, uh, anointing oil. And through the prayer of faith by the leaders of the church, we have seen in our church many times medis- medical diagnoses be overturned. Now, here's, here's my, 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 let me give some perspective to marriage and parenting. As wonderful blessings as these are in life, they do remain intact only in this age. Um, that offers you no consolation. I understand that. But please understand that parenting and marriage do not follow us into the next age, into eternal life. So there will be no parents in heaven. And a lot of parents believe that's what makes it heaven. Uh, and there will be no marriage in heaven. A lot of married people think that's what makes it heaven. Okay, anyway, it's a temporal institution for this age. It is for the procreation of the human race because that is God's design for populating the earth, creating an eternal heavenly family. But that being said, uh, well, I, I, before we get to the next point, I, I just want to make sure that you understand that there is also a, a tendency in the human heart to idealize these conditions, these experiences, marriages, marriage and family as the ultimate existence of human life. The, the Christian church was founded by a single man who never married and never had children and was propagated by a single man, some say a divorced man, who, as far as we know, never uh, was not married and did not bear children naturally, the apostle Paul. The Christian church went to Africa through an Ethiopian eunuch, okay, who worked for the Queen Candace in the first century, brought the gospel to Ethiopia and is today known as the father of the Abraham of Africa. That Ethiopian eunuch, his church is still in existence in Egypt, is called the Coptic Church. It is the most persecuted church in human history. And he uh, had no children and could not have children. He was, a, he was made a eunuch by man. Jesus actually talks about that in uh, Matthew chapter 19 when he says some are made eunuchs by men and then some choose to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. They, 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 they renounce marriage and they renounce childbearing for the sake of the kingdom of God. First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says it's a better, it's a better place to be unmarried and unattached to children so that you can give yourself fully to the purposes of the Lord. Okay, that... We live in an age in which these things are, are extolled as the ultimate expression of human life 
when that extolling is detached from the scriptural record. So just keep that in mind. I know that doesn't help you uh, emotionally deal with that. I just want it to mentally help you. Secondly, as to not being able to have children, we know from Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do abundantly, exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think. So be careful what you're thinking God cannot do. I have prayed for many. My wife actually has prayed for many. Uh, parents who or young people who could not have children and some in their mid-30s and some in their 40s. We have prayed over them, laid hands on them, and they had children. In fact, I just got word yesterday that one of the couples I prayed for about a year ago to have a child uh, just gave birth to their firstborn yesterday. Congratulations, Eric and Kyla. Um, I, I have seen this happen on multiple occasions. I remember one time I was ministering at the altar of our church at the end, and I, I remember this couple came to me. They're no longer in our church, but they said, you know, we're infertile. We just can't have children. What, what, can you pray for us? I said, sure. And I prayed for them, and I don't know why I did it, but I said this. I want you to go home, and I want you to start building out a nursery in your home. And as those words came out of my mouth, I said, why did you say that, you idiot? And <laughs> I didn't want to be like a false prophet in that moment. Well, Nine months later, they or about 10 or 11 months later, they came up to me in the front of the altar and I had forgotten the conversation completely. And they said, we got the uh, nursery ready and here's the child that we're placing in the nursery. It was a beautiful moment and a reminder that God can do um, what mankind cannot do. Remember that many of the barren women of redemption's story uh, were given miraculous births uh, or were given miraculous conceptions. So you have Sarah, you have Leah, you have Rebecca, I'm sorry, not Rebecca, Rachel, you have, I think Rebecca too, she prayed, right? You have Samson's mother, who is barren. You have Samuel's mother, Hannah, who is barren. Uh, you have countless women in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, Elizabeth, who is beyond the age of childbearing, gives birth to John the Baptist. And then, of course, Mary is the archetype of women who should not get pregnant, i.e. virgins, who gives birth to Jesus. The, the, the theological point that is being made from the redemptive narrative of history, beginning with Abraham and Sarah, all the way to Mary, the virgin, is this, that God has the ability to bring life from dead places. You see, God has the ability to bring life where there's only death. Well, obviously, the fulfillment of that truth is in the empty grave, right? Out of death comes life. So before you just establish something that the medical professionals have told you or Doctors have told you, just consider what God is able to do. Again, I don't know your medical condition. It might be far more serious than, I, than, I, than I'm assuming. So take those two things I, in tandem, okay? That first thing that I talked about with regards to marriage and ch childbearing being part of this age and then not being extolled as the ultimate epitome of existence in, in this age, according to Jesus Christ himself and Paul the Apostle. And then secondly, that God is able to do more than you think. Thank you for the question. I know, I know uh, that's a tough one and my heart goes out to you. And I pray right now in Jesus' name that a miracle will happen in your life. I do, I pray. I don't know who, who you are. You're an anonymous questioner. So we just pray in Jesus' name that God will do something wonderful uh, for you in that regard, amen. Thank you for the question. Uh, question number three, and this is from Larissa. Hello, Larissa. Here it is. Here's my question for your Thursday show. It is based on an essay Kevin DeYoung wrote in my Bible about sin. I have attached it for your reference. The line I'm referring to is the very end. At the very end, it does not really make sense to me. I'm wondering if I, I'm taking, become too literally. Thank you. Okay, here's the line. I read this about sin. Jesus overcomes sin by becoming sin for us. What does that mean that Jesus became sin? How could the perfection of Jesus possibly become sin? 
Does that mean Jesus was fully separated from God? Are we to take the verb becoming literal literal here? Uh, great question, and I thank you for this question because this is a great theological question. Oh, boy. Uh, okay, so the passage that this was probably addressed to in your study Bible by Kevin DeYoung, who is a fabulous theologian, by the way, uh, is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Uh, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Also, by the way, Galatians talk about that. Galatians mentions that Jesus becomes a curse for us. So not only did he become sin, he became a curse for us, as it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus hanged on the tree, the cross, and he became a curse for us so that we might become blessed through his obedience to the Father. Yes, Jesus was forsaken on the cross. He was separated momentarily on the cross from the Father is why he cries out, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 1, and also uh, it, it bearing the sins of the world upon himself. Now, 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 let me make sure that you understand what it's not saying. These verses are not saying that Jesus uh, physically became sin, and it does not mean that Jesus became a sinful thing, and it does not mean that Jesus became a sinner, and it does not mean that Jesus um, uh, was um, immoral and at any moment in his life. He was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What you have to be aware of is the doctrine of imputation. The doctrine of imputation states that we are imputed the righteousness of God through the obedience of Jesus Christ. That is, that righteousness, and this is a um, legal judicial term, righteousness is an accounting term as well, uh, diakonos in the Greek, which means that there is a righteous account, it's like a bank account, it's like a moral bank account. Here's your moral bank account. Here's, here's how, much, how much money do you bring to the table before God? Well, according to scripture, nothing. Yeah, Isaiah chapter 3 or one, I'm, I forget, I'm sorry. Uh, all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Uh, Romans 3, there is uh, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Psalm uh, 52, Psalm 14, there is none righteous, okay? So there's nothing judicially righteous about us that we bring to God. Jesus brings perfect obedience to the Father through his life as a human on this earth. Perfect, 100%, spotless, flawless obedience. At the cross... A cosmic exchange was what took place. The righteous record of Jesus was put into our account, and the empty, void, sinless record of us was put on Jesus. And for six hours, he hung on that cross for us. And why, why does a six-hour punishment pay for the sins of the world? Because Jesus himself is an eternal being. He was with God in the beginning. He became a man, and he is still with God eternally. So his eternal being bearing the punishment of the world was enough to bear the eternal sins of the world. And so he, that, that, that exchange, the, the, the doctrine is the doctrine of imputation. We are imputed with the righteousness of Christ because Jesus was imputed or the, the credit of our sin was placed upon him at the cross. So that is a good news uh, doctrine. And it's something that Christians... I think need to get back in touch with because here's what it teaches us. <laughs> we get to approach God with a perfect spotless record, not because of our righteousness. This is why Paul says, you know, I thought I was righteous by the law, but then when I found the righteousness of Christ through faith, a righteousness from God, I saw how much greater that righteousness was. I, I considered all my righteous works as dung, the, 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 the English translation of the word uh, scubula, which is a uh, <laughs> darker term for human feces, right? And he's saying that righteous, my righteousness is, is, is a scuba, is crap 
compared to the righteousness of God that I receive by grace through faith. And so there is a, in Romans chapter 1, 16, there is a righteousness from God that is acquired by faith. That far surpasses any righteousness of your own. So when you, as a Christian, pray, God sees the righteousness of God. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, you see. In Jesus' name is not abracadabra. In Jesus' name is not hocus pocus. It's not a phrase you slam onto the backside of your prayer to make sure that God hears it. In Jesus' name means you are standing in his reputation and in his righteousness and in his justification, and you are perfect before the Father judicially so that he hears your prayers and he answers them. It's just the most beautiful doctrine, I think, in all of Christianity. I think it's the doctrine that Christians have got to get back in touch with because we slide into moralism again and again and again as Christians where we start to think that we have lived a good life this week, so now God should really hear our prayers. That is moralism. That is living according to your righteousness, not God's righteousness. And sometimes God will do this to us. When we live a horrible week, he will answer our prayers spot on because he's trying to remind us, you're not saved by your works, you're saved by my works. You're saved by my son's work. So I uh, could go into that for a long time. That's what he means. And I just hope that clears it up. And I thank you for the question. And it was a great question, Larissa. Let's go to question number four. Um, this is a good question about false teaching. Question number four. Hello, Pastor Tim. I've been having a back and forth conversation with a sister in Christ on Facebook Messenger. Always the worst place to go to have... <laughs> theological question uh debate okay so i've been going back and forth about a pastor she likes and i used to like stephen for tick but now i believe is a false prophet i shared with her titus 1 9 james james 3 1 she responded with luke 9 49 to 50 does the verse she used relate to the verses i found in any way could you please help me dive deeper into the topic of false teachers and how to show love while warning others of them even ones they may like or love well i'll do my best um so let's address a couple of things. Let me first address the passages that you brought up. James chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should be teachers, brothers, because you know you'll be judged with greater strictness. Now the question there is, are we judged with greater strictness by God, or are we judged by greater, with greater strictness by those who hear us teach and see our lives? It can be both and. It could be one or the other. This scripture does not make it clear. I take the safe route, and I say it's for both, right? I'm judged greater. <laughs> as, a, as a teacher of the Bible, I'm going to be judged more strictly by God, and I'm going to be judged more strictly by people who... I minister to, right? Then Titus chapter 1, verse 9, uh, when Paul says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, so uh, if I turn in my Bible to Titus chapter 1, I want to point something out to you right off the bat here. Um, and this question, was this anonymous? I'm not sure if this was anonymous. Kelly, I don't think it was anonymous. Sorry if it was. So if I go to Titus and I look at Titus chapter 1, and he's, he's talking in the book of Titus to Titus. Paul is talking to Titus, who is a pastor, who is part of his uh, apostolic missionary team. And he is in an island called Crete, and he is establishing elders in every city in which there's a church so that the church can have overseers. Every, you don't have a church, by the way, until you have elders. Okay, And that's why Paul is—this important letter is written— to establish the fact that you need elders to have a church. Elders hold you accountable to the biblical truth, the teaching of the apostles, and you uh, and they or bring order and sound doctrine to the church. So I just want to point something out here. You're asking me, how do you help me dive deeper, deeper into the topic of false teachers and how to show love while warning others of them? I wouldn't suggest to you that your primary job as a Christian is to warn others of false, doc, of, of false teachers. 
I would suggest to you that your elders, your church elders, your pastors, your leaders are there to do that job because that is exactly what, what Paul is instructing Titus to do. And then, by the way, we could go, we could go back a couple of pages to 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 1, uh, verse 3, uh, when he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So he's, again, talking to another pastor and saying, you as a pastor need to shut the mouths of false teachers. Um, and again, the, and, and then we can go to chapter six, where he talks about false teachers again in first Timothy teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a dis- different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with God godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So again, he's talking to a pastor, shut the mouths of false teachers, Christians in churches, lay people for lack of a better word, need to be a little less engaged in this. And I I say this with love and respect, but I think you've got to leave that into the hands of your pastor and into your leader. Now, as regards to Stephen Furtick, I I would use the phrase false teacher. I wouldn't use the phrase false teacher for uh, for Stephen Furtick. I, I believe he's a man who believes Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. I believe he believes Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. I believe he, I believe he speaks that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Does he preach a message that is far more centered on me-ism than, Christ, than Christ's glory? Yeah, a little bit, I would say. He's not the only one, by the way. There's a lot of this teaching going around. It's something that I do call out in my own church. I don't name names, but I do. I'm watching uh, what I call the cool church movement. Uh, these disciples of uh, Robert Schuller, <laughs> these disciples of, um, uh, oh, who is the other one? The, the guy, oh, Norman Vincent Peale, uh, you know, positive belief, positive confession. It's all about you. It's all about you getting the good life. It's all about no one standing in your way of accomplishing your dreams and getting what your God wants you to have. And so we tend to put ourselves in the, in the place of Jesus. We, we tend to forget that the Bible's about Jesus, not about us. So when we talk about David, we don't talk about David as showing us how to live before he is showing us who Jesus Christ is, who our true David is. Um, and, and where do I get that? I get that from Luke chapter 24, where Jesus talks to the guys on the road to Emmaus and says, you know, packs for seven miles all the scriptures and from Moses and the prophets concerning himself. How he talks to the Pharisees in John chapter 5 and says, you think that by these scriptures, if you diligently study them, you have eternal life. But these scriptures that you look to, they are pointing to me. The scriptures, the Old Testament is all about Jesus. The gospels are the record of Jesus and the epistles are the interpretation of Jesus and the revelation, the book revelation is about the coming of Jesus. Okay, so the whole Bible is about Jesus. That being said, there's going to be a lot of preachers who take leniency or who take liberty, sorry, with making their job as extollers or expounders of God's word about Jesus, and they're going to let self start to permeate some of that teaching. I do it. I'm just not aware of the ways I do it because I I don't see myself from the outside. I have to constantly remind myself that when I'm preaching, I'm preaching Christ. And here's a great test for great preaching. The great preaching... um, uh, the the great preaching is measured by this. When you leave that sermon, do you leave loving Jesus more or loving yourself more? 
or loving that pastor more or loving that church more. Nothing wrong with loving them as neighbors and brothers and sisters in Christ and the elders and leaders. There's nothing wrong with loving your church. But great gospel-centered preaching uh, extols the glories of Christ and humbles sinners and at the same time fills sinners with joy in that they are accepted by faith through by grace through faith. We leave a good gospel preaching, a good gospel sermon saying, praise you, Jesus. To that end, I think that Stephen Furtick is uh, growing more and more failing in that regard, but I still would not call him a false teacher. Uh, Oh, by the way, a great passage that refers to this, and I want to just show you from the scripture uh, why I am hesitant to so quickly and uh, uh, so loosely throw, slap the false teacher phrase on someone is this. Uh, Philippians chapter 115, Paul in prison writes, he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. That would sound bad, right? I'm preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. He's talking about other preachers who are preaching freely while he's in prison saying, oh, Paul got in prison. I'm not in prison. I must be a better preacher than Paul or I'd be in prison, right? And Paul says, now this is happening and he doesn't call them out. He doesn't call them false teachers. Here's what he says in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. So, yes, and I see some comments here. He is more like a motivational speaker. Uh, There seems to be a major emphasis on the celebrities of his church. Yep, I agree. I agree 100% with you guys about that here in the chat. I would just say that unless he is speaking um, blatantly uh, false doctrines, I would not give him that uh, that um, term. I would not give him that moniker. Let's be a little bit more gracious with people who preach or practice Christianity different than us. And let's not, I think that a lot of times in the church, in the Christian church especially, we're trying to find demons where there aren't any. The world's got plenty of demons for us. We, we need to lay off a little bit on church leaders who, um, uh, yeah, liberally preach the Bible with selfish intent as Paul himself acknowledged in Philippians chapter one. And we need to be far more diligent in exposing the errors of our age. And uh, that's why in my ministry, public ministry, and especially even here on the deep end, I'm uh, on Tim Hatch live. I'm more interested in showing you the falsehood of the lies of secular people, not Christian people. That's my answer, for better or for worse. Let's get into cha- uh, chapter. Let's get into question number five. What's the difference between predestined or predetermined salvation? And this comes from my friend Doug. Thank you for the question, Doug. Um, okay, so just right off the top here, Doug, I've never heard of the term predetermined salvation. What I think you mean by predetermined is that you are implying that the the doc- the doctrine of predestination means that. there's a fatalistic view of our salvation because the Bible talks about God's sovereignty, God's all-knowingness, omniscience, and God's um, predestining the elect unto salvation, saving some. Well, okay, two things. Fatalism is not predestination. Uh, By that I mean 
no, not every action of man has been determined by God, uh, and therefore God is the cause of evil. God is the cause of bad decisions. God is the cause of rejecting him. No, 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 no. That is an error. That is, again, going beyond what Scripture reveals to us about the predestined will or determination of God concerning those who would be saved. As regards to predestination, the simple difference between predestination and predetermined salvation is predestination is biblical, whereas predetermined salvation is nowhere to be found in the scriptural record. Now, um, Ephesians 1, it's very clear. Ephesians 1, uh, five, uh, 4, to five, 4 to 6, he, he, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. Uh, through Jesus Christ. He says it again in verse 11. We are predestined uh, to be like Jesus. And then Romans chapter 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who are who love God and are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Predestination cannot be argued out of the scriptures. What, what we often do, though, as Christians, is we assume, <laughs> and this is going to set some people off, we assume the scriptures speak of free will. And I want to tell you, there's no biblical verse for free will. We love to throw this out though. Do you know why? Because we want to defend humanity's dignity. We want to defend our own dignity in coming to Christ. We want to defend our own decisions. When the scriptural record does not paint humanity with a, with a pretty brush, there's no scripture telling us we have free will. There's plenty of scriptures, and I take you to Jonathan Edwards, a great, you know, uh, 18th century New England preacher who wrote a great book called On the Bondage of the Will, On the Freedom of the Will, one of those two titles, anyway, that we are born in iniquity, we are born in sin, we are born slaves to sin, we are slaves to iniquity, we, we, we cannot do what is right. Can we make moral choices? Well, yes, we can. But a lot of times the moral choices that we make are influenced by the forces around us and not within us. For instance, a, a child who is raised in a two-parent family and has been provided for well and disciplined by those two parents has a better moral record, most likely, than the, the child with divorced parents or abusive parents or parents who are alcoholics and abandoned him as a child. One child grows up and becomes a murderer. The other child grows up and becomes a CEO and a very reputable member of society. Well, was that because of his own free will? No, that's because of the conditions in which they were born uh, that were determined by God in heaven, not by their own will. So there's no such thing as free will. There is such thing. There is, I would say there is such a thing as influenced free will. There's a lot of decisions that you're going to make that are influenced you're going to freely make decisions that are influenced by a lot of conditions around your life. The point being, there's no biblical doctrine that teaches we come to salvation of our own accord. There's just no verse. So I give you a couple of examples. The Bible says that Lydia came to the place of prayer where Paul was preaching, or he came to the place of prayer in uh, by the river in Philippi, and the Bible says the Lord opened her heart to receive the message that was spoken by Paul. Cornelius. Cornelius is praying, but we don't know if he's praying to Yahweh. He's praying. 
and God comes to him and says, your alms and your, and your kindness have, been, have, been, have come up to the Father, and uh, now we're going to send Peter to your house. Uh, go, Peter. He's going to come and tell you the message on which to be saved. Cornelius does not do that. God does that. Uh, the Philippian jailer does not want anything to do with God until there's a jailbreak, uh, supernaturally, by God's intervention. Uh, they're, they're, uh, Paul the Apostle of all the people in the, on the Bible who least wanted to be a follower of Jesus, it was him. And he is saved not by his own will, but by the will of the Father. So there is no record of someone coming to Christ of their own free will. We are in the bondage of slavery to sin. And apart from God's redemptive purposes in saving us and delivering us from that bondage, we have no chance at coming to Christ. Let's get into the next question right away, because the next question, I think refers to this very same thing. So question number six is, do you believe you can lose your salvation? Uh, I believe it's not my salvation. That's the simple answer. It's not my salvation. Uh, Fundamentally, we need to learn to see salvation the way God sees it. God is the one who saves. It is not we who get saved. I know we say it all the time and I say it, but we have to get rid of the idea of we came to Christ we found Jesus, we got saved. No, we were saved. We received Christ by grace through faith. The vehicle's faith that comes to us by grace. Here's a couple of passages. Sorry, the question went away. Here's a couple of passages. John uh, 6, 37, uh, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and, I'll, and, and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. So all the Father gives me Okay, that's not, that's not you choosing him. That's the Father giving you to Jesus. You will come to him, and Jesus will never cast you out. So it is God's work to save, and it is God's work to preserve you as saved. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 39, just two verses later. In fact, I should get there. Let me get there in my Bible so I can read it to you verbatim. John chapter 6, verse 39 And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So again, Jesus referring to the fact that the father is going to give him a people and he will lose none of them and he will raise them up on the last day. Uh, Let's skip ahead to verse 44. No one can come to me. This is John chapter six. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, this is in the midst of an argument he's having with the Jews who are grumbling about him because he is talking about being the bread of life that has come down from heaven. They came back to him the next day because the day before he had just fed them with the five loaves and the two fishes. And so then... They come back for free, free food, and Jesus says, you, you don't get it. I'm the food. I'm the food, okay? And you, uh, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they are furious. They're like, how dare you say that? You know, that's ridiculous. And Moses gave us bread from heaven. What will you do to prove us? And he's like, I am the, I am the bread. So no one comes to the Father unless the Father first draws him. I'm just giving you the words of Jesus, okay? This is God's work on your life. John 10, 27, let's, let's skip ahead a little bit uh, further, okay? Just before we answer any more questions about this, because I can see some questions. Oh, I have one more question about this, and I want to get to your question, Del- Deluxe Nugget. Um, that's the name of the person on YouTube. It's <laughs> a great name. Thank you. Uh, John 10, 27, Jesus says this, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. Jesus describing his church. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. I and the, fa- I and the father are one. So you've got this constant refrain from the words of Jesus himself saying, all who come to me have been drawn to me by the father and I'm never going to lose them. Then you can go back to Jonah chapter 2, 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then you can go back to Psalm 51, verse 10 to 13, where Jesus, where David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's not my salvation, your salvation. You made me who I am. Did David choose to be king or did God choose him to be king? And as for those people who depart from the faith, our father in the faith, John, writes very clearly. Let me get to that passage because it's important. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have continued with us. Um, they would have continued with us, but they went out. They left the church. They left the faith that it might become plain that they are not of us. I could take you to Matthew chapter seven, the last verse verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me get there real quick. Where Jesus says, not everyone, not these aren't the last verses, but in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, 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 or Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, many works in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what is he saying there? The phrase that they're going to offer to God is, didn't we do this? Didn't we do these great works? Didn't we perform these great righteous works? Doesn't that make us worthy? No. No, that's, it's not what you do. It's what God does. It is his salvation. It is not mine. So let me get to a question because I want to answer it. It's on the chat and I hope I can pull it up. Deluxe Nugget asks this question. So we have no control over whether we get saved. I'm confused. Why then do we preach the gospel if God has already determined who gets saved? Okay, again, this is... This is a false perspective. Again, we, 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 we always fall into this because we're human and we're selfish and we are me-centered. That we have this ability to determine our eternal destiny. Now, that's not true, as I have clearly shown you from the words of Jesus. You, have to exp- you cannot embrace my opinion. You have to embrace the words of Jesus, the words of the scriptures. They are the, the, the whole counsel of God. So regardless of how you feel about it, you have to subjugate your feelings to God's word and his authority in his word. Secondly, why do we preach the gospel? Because God commands us to preach the gospel. As much as he commands us to repent, he commands us to preach the gospel. This, that we don't preach the gospel because we are saving people. We preach the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. We preach the gospel because the gospel changes the human heart. We preach the gospel because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Now the question becomes, well then, then um, what about those people who have never heard? That's in God's hands. Our job is to go to them. Our job is to go to them and preach the gospel. Please do not Take the, the foreknowledge of God and the sovereignty of God as an excuse to be a lazy Christian who never contributes to the cause of God. Jesus left heaven to come to this earth and died on a brutal cross so that we might be brought back to God and so that he might save people from their sin. And he is doing that to this day. And there is something powerful 
to the gospel. There is a power to the gospel that changes the human heart and converts that heart from rebellious sinner to beloved worshiper. That is, and, and here's the other thing. Predestiners who want to say it's once saved, always saved. That is called one-point Calvinism, and it is an affront to biblical doctrine. It is not, I put my hand up, and I said a prayer, and now I'm saved, and I can do whatever I want. <laughs> Please, come on. You don't get saved from your sins to continue in sin. You don't get saved from your will, your bondage to your, the bondage of your will, to the freedom of the will as a son of God to go back to the bondage of the will. You get saved from your sin to walk in newness of life. If you claim to be saved but love the things of this world, the, the scriptures are very clear. The love of the Father is not in you. You're not saved. That's First John chapter 2, verse 16, 15 and 16. Please do not, please avoid dumbing powerful doctrines down to 10 cent nuggets. We preach the gospel because Christ teaches us to preach the gospel. We are not the ones who determine who gets saved. That is God. We are commanded by our Savior to go into all the world and make disciples. Period. Full stop. And I hope that helps. Oh, it does because he responded. Thank you. That makes sense completely. Well, thank you, Del Deluxe, Deluxe, Deluxe Nugget. I appreciate your comment and I love the doctrine of predestination. I do. I love it. And you should love it too. You should love it too because if my salvation was up to my will, I would not have a chance. I would not have a chance. Neither would you. Question number seven. Often when walking around cities or talking, taking public transportation, there are many people who are asking for money. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what our response as Christians should be to these requests. I know we are called to help those who ask, Matthew 5, uh, 42, for example, but I'm just wondering what your perspective is. My perspective is use wisdom. My perspective is very simple. Use wisdom in regards to charity. And then at the same time, seek to be char charitable on all occasions. So I, I do a few things when I, when I think about, is this a valuable cause? Number one, my money is God's money, not my money. So that's why you tithe 10% to your local church. And I believe that is that comes through the cross into the New Testament, Matthew 23, 23, uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, sorry, and other places. Um, but, but so my primary responsibility toward my money is to acknowledge that this is God's money, not mine. And tithing helps remind me of that. Number two, my primary responsibility as Christian is to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as my, myself. So who is my neighbor? The neighbor... That the, the, the story that Jesus shows is the story of the Good Samaritan. I think it's in Luke 10. Correct me if I'm wrong. Where he uh, shows these two opposite ends of the social spectrum, a, Samar a hated Samaritan and a, and a Jewish man who fell among robbers. And the Levite and the priest go by on the other side. And the, and the man who is the outsider loves and cares for and nurtures and heals the, the man who he shouldn't even have any social dealings with. And that is the picture of a neighbor, right? The picture of a neighbor is someone who loves for the person who cannot love themselves. And even the one who might look at somebody that like has been fallen among thieves and said, well, he deserves it. He shouldn't have gone that way alone, right? He shouldn't have been on that road alone. So he fell among thieves, stupid him. He deserves what he gets. Okay, that's, that's not what Jesus is teaching there. Jesus is teaching that we all need charity, all right? So uh, that's the 
second issue there. And then number three is that God has given me a, a mind to receive his wisdom and, and, and the spirit of God gives me discernment to kind of, I don't want to say, I don't want to say it like this, but I have to say it like this, read people. <laughs> All men are liars. So some will abuse charity for their own selfish gain. I have a friend who works for the uh, Massachusetts Highway Department, and he has seen this. He has seen this firsthand. Street beggars who will beg all day for eight hours, get up, walk down two blocks, and get into an expensive car and drive away. Uh, they make, he said, he, I think there has been an estimate about this. They make somewhere in the range of $75,000 a year. That's tax-free. That's like $100,000 a year. So some people abuse that charity. Some people do. You've got to be careful what you do with God's money regarding charity. So where does charity begin? Charity begins, I will give you this passage from Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Um, it says, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, especially to them who are of the household of faith, Galatians six ten. So first things first, my charity after the tithe goes to God's people, goes to the household of faith. And so am I giving to those in need in my faith community? That's Acts chapter 2, right? They gave to all who are in need. There was no needy persons among them because they gave as they they sold their possessions and they gave to the, the apostles and the apostles distributed to any as he had need. That's Acts chapter 2. That's the, that's the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit at work in the church. Then you, then you can go to your, your unsaved neighbor, people that you know. So I would say use your wisdom and intellect to say, First, am I giving to the people that I know who are in the faith who have need? Secondly, am I giving to those who are secular, who I know, who are unbelievers, who I know? And am I, am I being charitable to those people who I know who have need? And then when I see that street backer, I mean, he's, to me, I, he's down on that list. But at the same time, he might genuinely be in need. He might not be. So what do I do? I use discernment. And I think that the Lord can lead you here. I really do. And he can lead you to charitable instances where you might normally ignore it, but for that moment, the Lord says, give. And you got to be careful. You got to be careful. I have done this myself. I rarely give money. Um, when I see someone, I don't want to talk about these things. I don't want to share these things because it sounds like I'm bragging, but I have done this and I don't give money, but I, do, I will say, you know what? What do you need? What do you need today? I'm going to give you something. What do you need? And they'll tell me and I'll go get it. And I'll go, go to the store, buy it, bring it back to them. Do that. Because uh, what does Paul say? If we have food and clothing and shelter, that shall be enough for us, right? So does that person have food? Buy them food. Does they, do they have clothes? Then buy them clothes. Do they have shelter? Then buy them shelter. <laughs> All right? But find out, right? This idea that we can just throw money at strangers and think, okay, I'm doing the work of God is divorced from how God has taught his people in the New Testament to practice charity. First, in the household of faith. Secondly, to those who I know who are secular. And thirdly, to the strangers on the street. I uh, hope that helps. Again, that's just my answer to the question from what I understand in the scriptures. Question number eight. I do not want to poison a conversation and just want them to come and see, in quotation marks. However, come to church is not working. What words besides church can I use when inviting someone who is lost so they can learn about God and Jesus since church in, the, in New England brings up bad memories 
for most about prosperity preachers, sex abuse, hypocrisy, and condemnation. I say church and they are and they say all set. Maybe a better word is meeting place or worship hall or maybe a hospital for your soul. What words do you use? Well, I don't think any of those words are going to make a difference, to be honest with you. Meeting place sounds weird. Worship hall sounds like I'm part of a cult and hospital for the soul is Christianism. That's Christianism. That's a Christianism. I wouldn't use a different word thinking that's going to be more attractive or more potent to bring someone to church. I would, as I admonish my church on a regular basis, I would say, before you ever get to come and see, why don't you spend a good deal of time getting to know that person? Why don't you spend a good deal of time finding out what are their, what's their story? Why do they hate church? Maybe that's the first step where that person says, no, all set. Follow, follow-up question. Could I just ask you, no, you know, no pressure. Why are you all set? Just then start to have that dialogue. And maybe they'll say, ah, the church is full of nonsense. Okay, I totally get it. What nonsense? <laughs> and, then, and then you get more information. What are you doing? Are you going to answer all their questions? No, you're trying to find out who they are. Remember that Jesus patterns for us the expression of evangelism by coming and dwelling among us. He was in the beginning with God, John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1 11, I think. Uh, So you have incarnational ministry. Jesus spends three years with the disciples and they come to faith in him through his living among them, walking with them, doing life together. I take you back to John chapter six, that famous passage we were just talking about when Jesus says, you know, nobody comes to the father unless the father draws him. At the end of that chapter, the Bible says, he tells them, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they leave and it says in John 6, 66, it says, after this, many disciples turned and no longer followed him. And he said to the 12, verse 67, do you want to go as well? Do you want to leave the 12 disciples? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the eternal words of life. And we have believed, this is a great passage, and have come to know, underline that in your Bibles, because that's a good one. That's a good line. And have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, Peter is saying, we weren't so sure in the beginning, but we have come to know. How did he come to know? Because the guy lived among them. He, he, Jesus, the guy, I'm sorry for saying that, the guy, Jesus lived among them and did life with them. And as they watched him and as they related with him, there was something attractive about his life. There was something attractive about the works that he did that they saw that made an impact on, the, on Peter and the disciples. And they came to believe that he was the Holy One of God. So that's my answer to that question. Uh, and I'll get to some of those questions in the chat. Keep, keep chatting it up, guys. Just put you up here on the screen. I can't scroll down far enough here on the screen. I'm sorry. I wish I could. Let me see if I can just inch it up. Oh, yes, I can. Woo, magic. Oh, there we go. Kelly says, being fast to listen is slow to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a good word especially Christians are oftentimes trying to close the deal with unbelievers. And we've got to stop trying to cl- treat them like we're selling them a car. We've got to be very careful about that. We're not closing the deal. We are salt and light. We are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let them see your good works and praise your father, which, in, which is in heaven. You know, um, so that's some of my, my admonition to you. Let's get to question number nine. What are your thoughts on providence versus miracles? I was reading an article about God's providence versus miracles during the U.S. battle for independence from England, and this question goes on. And it says, the author stated, 
such as the battle fought between General George Washington's troops uh, and British troops on August 27, 1776, what is now Brooklyn, was just a matter of providence and not a miracle. The battle is notable because the British should have destroyed or captured the entire colonial army as the British both dramatically outnumbered 32,000 and outgunned the colonial army and was thwarted by two supernatural instances. An unusual lack of wind meant that British warships couldn't make designated landing site to cut off the army's escape and an unnatural fog covered the East River after the sun rose, allowing Washington's 9,000 troops to cross undetected. As the fog lifted, the British were left in amazement as the Continental Army was gone. The British went on to capture New York, but they did so without destroying the Continental Army, allowing them to continue fighting and ultimately establish the Republic. There are many instances in the Bible of similar type of occurrences, Samuel, 1 Samuel 14 being one of them, happening during a battle. And from his own writings, we know that Washington implored his troops to observe days of fasting, humiliation, and prayer for God's mercy and prosperity for both the war and our country's founding. I know this might be splitting hairs, but it seems like this view diminishes the glory of God for what should be considered a miracle as it appeared to be an altercation or alteration of the general operation of the natural laws. And not only did Washington give God glory, but it has been vastly written about and, ca and it caused then and still causes today on wonder about what he can do. Okay, so the short, short version of this question is, what are your thoughts on providence versus miracles? And uh, they, this questioner asks about a moment in the uh, Revolutionary War where God seemed to step in and and blockade with with uh, supernatural elements the British Army from destroying the Continental Army. Okay, well, my thoughts on providence and miracles is this: providence. Um, I'm sorry, miracles are God circumventing the natural law to accomplish his purposes. So raising the dead, walking on water, uh, healing the sick supernaturally immediately, uh, opening blind eyes, the sun stands still, Joshua, the book of Joshua, Red Sea parted. That's God circumventing the natural law of the universe to accomplish his purposes. Providence is God working through the natural order, weaving it together like a master craftsman to make these things work out for our good, those who love God and are caught according to his purposes and for his glory. So the, the, the delineation is, is it a natural event or is it a supernatural event? Is it a natural, a supernatural event is a miracle and is it a natural event is providence. And so an argument could be made about fog on the East river, uh, about what was the other one? Let me just read down here. Um, fog on the East river and sorry. Oh, an unusual lack of wind. I, I don't know if I would call those miracles as I would just call them providential moments through natural occurrences that happened at just the right time for the British to be blockaded from the Continental Army. I, I would say it is far more glorifying to God to rejoice in his providence working through the natural order of events than the miraculous. Look, if God keeps having to step in into the miraculous to get things done, it's like, yo, you made the place. Why does it always have to be upended to accomplish your purposes, right? So as glorious as miracles can be, remember that God loves his creation and he made it and he, or he orchestrates it and he works through it and he weaves it together for our good. So that to me, when God even uses um, rebellious sinners to accomplish his purposes, such as uh, Pilate, Herod and the Jewish leaders all working together to put Jesus on the cross. That's a, that's not a, that wasn't a miraculous event. It produced our salvation, the miraculous event of the resurrection. 
was 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 pre- uh, preceded by the natural order of events that brought Jesus to the cross. So God is constantly using the pro- his providential nature and his miraculous nature to bring about his glory on the earth. I don't think that there's too much of a difference in them bringing glory to God. I think both do. I actually think providence brings more glory to God. That's my answer to that question. Okay, question number 10. What do you do in a series of tragic events? Uh, pulls you under and you just can't get back to where you once were, making this long season feel even more tragic because you have always been able, with God's help, to get back up and move forward. Okay, again, uh, let me a- answer this question the way I answered our first question. My heart goes out to you, friend, whoever you are, and I think this is an anonymous question. I would say, here's what you do. You get alone with God. You pray. And you read your Bible for long periods of time. We have a nasty habit of not abiding in the vine. We do. Remember, Jesus said, you, unless you abide in me, you cannot do anything. Abiding means to intentionally take time to live in the presence of Jesus. How do we do that? Well, we do that through the word of God, through reading his word. The Bible says the entrance of your word brings light and understanding. So when I read the word, it's, it's coming into my heart. It's bringing light. It's bringing understanding to my heart to know him. Secondly, we are abiding in Christ. And then thirdly, when we abide in Christ, he hears our prayers and he answers them. What you might be experiencing is something called the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul is something that a lot of Christians experience. It's from a 16th century Spanish monk who wrote about St. John of the Cross, who wrote about the fact that you will go through seasons where to no fault of your own, you'll just feel like overwhelmed by darkness. Well, A.W. Tozer wrote a fabulous book or a message, I think it was a sermon. He talked about the dark night of the soul. And uh, let me see if I have it um, somewhere for you. And he, he, yeah, I do have it. Okay. He wrote, remember how they nailed Jesus to a cross. Remember the darkness, the hiding of the father's face. This was the path Jesus took toward immortal triumph. As he is, so we are in this world. Meaning, when we are, as you say here in this question, uh, you are under and you are experiencing a series of tragic events. Well, that's what Jesus experienced. And we suffer with Christ through this life. That's the human experience. That's the Christian experience. By the way, it's been granted to us. Philippians 1.29, my least favorite Bible verse. For it is granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his name's sake. Uh, we are going to suffer. We And then James chapter 1, count it all joy when you experience trials of many kinds. We know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and stir, and, or steadfastness. And steadfastness must complete his work so that the man of God may be perfect and complete, lacking, in nothing, lacking nothing. Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And God has shed abroad in our hearts the Holy Spirit, love, through the Holy Spirit, love. So, so we Christians look at our distresses differently than the world does. We look at it as a character-forming, uh, completing, sanctifying work of God, wherein we identify with the sufferings of Christ and we are sanctified i.e. separated from affections to this world that our heart might be set on the world to come. The worst thing that you can experience in this life is the love of this life. 
And I say that with as much pastoral concern as I can, but you cannot fall in love with this present age. If you do, you will lose your life. For he who would hold on to his life, who would save his life, will lose it. But he who loses for his life for, for, the, for my sake and the sake of the gospel will find it. Jesus said this. So we don't love this life. If you are completely content and completely happy with this present life, number one, you might be on drugs, or number two, you need to be converted. Okay, <laughs> drugs because you are anesthetized from the problems of life, which are for everybody, believers and non-believers, or unbeliever, which means you love this present age because this is the only age you will experience any kind of goodness from God. Every trial, every trouble that a Christian endures on this earth is a subtle reminder that they are not made for this earth, that they are not home yet. As Jesus said, when you are persecuted, when you are reviled, when you are slandered, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Amen? I hope that answers that question. I pray for you as well. Lord Jesus, give this person hope in this season of tragedy. Give them a sense that you are working all things together for their good and give them peace and love through the Holy Spirit that abides in them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. Thank you for these questions. There's t there are 10 that came in. It is called 10 Questions with Tim for that reason, because we're going to stop here. And some questions came in later. And I want you to know that we're going to write them down and we're going to save them for two weeks from today. Join me in two weeks from an hour ago as we will get back to 10 questions uh, with Tim. I'm glad that you joined us. I'm glad that you were here. And we'll see you next time. God bless everybody.